You may be seated. You know, one of the really interesting things about Father's Day, Father's Day, uh, unlike most of the other holidays in all of the world, Father's Day, for some reason, is a very humorous one. And when you read some of those, uh, those Father's Day cards, some of them are actually really kind of funny. I, I ran across some new ones this year. Um, I, re- I didn't receive these, by the way, uh, but these are, <laughs> these are ones that I, I, I came across. Uh, the first one, please accept this Father's Day card as a token of my poverty. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Thanks for always helping me out financially so I can focus on being an independent woman. (laughs) Happy Father's Day, Dad. You're the world's greatest dad, although my frame of reference is limited. (laughs) You know, we can laugh a little bit at being a parent, right? Especially for dads. I mean, we get all of that. But you know, uh, not everyone's experience of being a parent is... is, uh, a lot of times great. Uh, about six months ago, I was talking with a medical profession. This young woman was um, uh, a medical profession, not a member of our church, lives on the far side of San Antonio, uh, but a brand new mom. Had only been a mom for about, uh, about three or four months at the time, and we're there talking, and knowing that I'm a minister, she begins talking to me about, you know, being a parent and so on and so forth, and I'm just really lathering it up. I mean, it's just great, and you'll have fun, and, you know, don't worry. I mean, there are so many things that just take care of themselves. Uh, you know, you're, you're married to a great husband. Uh, there'll be so much help there, and, and what's wrong? Why, why are you so worried? And she begins to open up. There had been a patient she had seen. It was an older woman who had an older daughter, and all this woman could do, and it wasn't just this one visit, just every time she's with this woman in uh, a, a consultation, the woman is just always berating her daughter and just, I, I just hate being a mother. I just hate being a mother. I mean, it's just so hard. I hate it. I just can't wait until she gets out of the house and off to college. And she's saying all of this to this brand new mother who is so excited about having this new baby. And she goes, what do you think? And I say, well, I, you know, I don't know the, the girl. I mean, you know, I, maybe the mother has a point. She says, no, I know the daughter. The daughter's great. Anybody would love to have this kid as their daughter. And then she says, I don't know why anybody would complain about the decision that they themselves made to bring a kid into the world. Now, I don't always like this particular comedian's uh, brand of humor, but Chris Rock said something that I thought was absolutely stellar. He says, when I hear people talk about juggling or the sacrifices they make for their children, I look at them like they're crazy because sacrifice infers that there was something better to do than being with your children. He's not a preacher, but I could say amen to that. We've been spending the last couple of weeks, actually it's been all of June so far, we've been looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The gist of this verse is, is that the people of God are to completely be devoted to God. And that is the most important thing that you pass on to your kids. And I do believe that a lot of the other stuff, like tying your shoes, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's a skill set that you teach and you learn it. But all of that takes care of itself. There are so many things that are more important, and this is one of them. Because as a parent, what you're doing when it comes to teaching them about God is you're teaching them a progression. You're teaching them when they're an infant, you know, when they are, they are parent-dependent to become independent, where they begin to take care of themselves. But overarching all of that, going from parent-dependent to independent, is teaching them how to be God-dependent. That is the most important thing that you do as a parent. 
And when we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, those verses, those five or six verses, four through nine, teach us two tremendous truths about passing that faith on to the kiddos. Now last week we looked at the back end of that, and that was when you're teaching your kid about God, you have to seize every moment. You have to take every opportunity, and the, the key phrase or the key line out of last week's sermon is this, that discipling your kids means intentionally, I mean, you've got intent, there's a goal in mind, intentionally introducing them to God in normal, everyday life. One of the things we saw when we looked at that passage last week, Deuteronomy 6, it said it doesn't say you've got to add all of this stuff. It says, in the normal living of every day, you introduce them to God with God talking, God examples, and, and, and God conversations, and some of it planned and some of it uh, you know, happens on the fly. But in normal life, as you live as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, you teach your kids in every instance, in every experience, in every moment about God. The second part, which is actually the first part of this verse, is this this morning. The gist of what we're talking about this morning is this. Discipling your kids means developing within them a deeply devoted love for God above all else. Above Xbox, above sports, above fashion, above uh, secular music, above everything else. You're discipling your kids by developing in them a deeply devoted heart and soul and mind and body that loves God above all else. And dads, I just want to say this, and we'll talk about this more and more as we go through this lesson. You can't give away what you don't have. The text that we're looking at, and we talked about this a little bit last week, the text that we're looking at, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, is known as the Shema. And it gets that word from the Hebrew language that's found in the, the, the Bible, the actual Hebrew language of the verse, it's, it's, it's Shema Yitzrael, hear Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord is our God, Yahweh Echad, which means God is, is one or God alone. And these verses were so important to Israel that it was, it was really the way that they understood the world. It was the filter by which they saw everything. And Jewish people, when they got up in the morning, they would recite the Shema, you know, uh, uh, Shema Yitzrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. They would say that in the morning uh, along, uh, along with the rest of the verse. They would, they would say it in the middle of the day, and right before they would go to sleep at night, they would say the same, the same Hebrew. And it was also taught that, you know, one of the high points of, of, a, of a man's life or a woman's life a follower of God, was that even as you lay there in the last moments, as you're breathing your last, these are the words that are going to be on your lips. It became the filter, the, the anchor point for all that Israel understood about itself. An example, uh, sometime after the time of Jesus, there was a revolt against Rome. It was the Bar Koba uh, revolt. And there was a rabbi, a very famous rabbi in Israel known as Rabbi Akiva. And he had participated in this revolt and therefore had become kind of a marked man. But if you, you know anything about Rome, Rome, Rome was fairly lenient on just about anything except messing up the Roman peace. They, as long as you were calm, as long as you accepted the fact that you were a conquered people, as long as you paid the taxes, as long as there was some kind of a, you know, at least lip service to allegiance to keep the peace that Rome had established, you pretty much could do what you want. But because Akiva had participated in that revolt against Rome, he was a marked man as well as all of the other rabbis. And Rome said, 
you cannot teach Torah. And Rabbi Akiva said, but this is why God put me on the planet. And he continued to teach Torah, the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. What's the next one? Numbers. Just making sure you're awake. Deuteronomy. And he continued to teach. And Rome took note of that. And Rome grabbed him. And as they tortured Rabbi Akiva to death because he would not give up Torah, these are the words that he said. He said over and over, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. And that's how he died. Now, during the time of Jesus, a lot of debates, as you know, as you read the Gospels, a lot of debates because of all of the law that had been found within Torah, as well as, as the oral tradition, there were a lot of debates over what was the most important. I mean, you know, inside of Torah itself, there were 613 laws. Some of them were about things that you do. Some of them were about things that you don't do. But there was a lot of debate. Uh, the different schools of rabbis and so on and so forth were debating back and forth. What is the most important? And during the time of Jesus, he was actually asked, and if you go to Mark chapter 12, you have this story in your Bible. Uh, before you get to the passage where he answers that question, there's one in which he and the Sadducees kind of get into a debate. And as you know, the Sadducees, they only believed in Torah, nothing else. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They just believed in Torah and life as you make it right now on planet Earth. And so they wanted to discredit Jesus because they saw him as a threat to what was happening between Israel and Rome. And they tried to discredit him by asking him the question, here's this woman who marries this guy. He, he dies. There's no children. Leverett Law comes into play where his brother is supposed to marry her and provide a son that's going to take care of her. The first son, or the, excuse me, the brother, first brother comes, there's, there's no kiddo. And this same kind of uh, interaction in Leverett marriage goes all the way through all seven brothers. None of them provide her a child. They die, she dies in heaven. Whose wife is she? And they're just snickering to themselves because, ah, you know, nobody, nobody can answer that. And Jesus answers the Sadducees by saying, you know what, you don't even know the Word of God, let alone the power of God. That's your issue. Well, the Pharisees, who were the other sect that were kind of contra Christ, or at least the majority of them were contra Christ during this period of time, they didn't really like the Sadducees, and they were really glad to see the Sadducees, you know, get one in the, in the, in the chops. And so one of the Pharisees kind of comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I've got a question for you. Which is the most important law out of all 613 plus all of that oral tradition? Which is the most important? And Jesus looks at him and says, Shema Yitzrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. For Moses in the Old Testament and Christ in the New Testament, this is the core value for all human beings. And we're going to see that first part about loving God in two different places or two different angles or, or uh, parts. The first is a truth on which you base your life and the second, and I don't know if this is the right word or not because of the kind of the, the negative connotations, but a duty, maybe a better word, is a response on which or by which you live your life. Now let's look at that first one, truth. A truth. 
One of the really interesting things about this verse in English is that we don't always pick up on the fact that Moses uses the personal name of God. That's why I've been saying it to you in Hebrew. If you read your English Bible, it's the Lord. But when you read it in Hebrew, it's God's personal name. It's God's personal name that's being revealed to Moses in that burning bush in the desert of Midian. Now, taking a half, half step back, you've heard me say from time to time that the Bible does not command us to worship. The Bible assumes that we will worship. The Bible knows that our hearts are really created to worship, that we're not complete without recognizing, you know, something's got to go into that, that heart-shaped hole that we have in our heart. The Bible doesn't command us to worship. The, the Bible assumes that we will. What the Bible commands about worship is make it God. Now, the same sort of thing is happening here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is, is hearing God say, He's, he, he is, he's hearing God say, and he's also transmitting to Israel that there are lots of gods that you can worship in this world. There are lots of idols that you can worship in this world. But the one that recognizes that El Elyon is the creator and the possessor of the heavens and earth, that this God who created everything has revealed his name, his name is Yahweh, he is the one that is to be worshiped. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, in the New Living Translation, it says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, have you ever just kind of stepped back? I mean, at, at some point you always have to answer this question, but when's the last time you really thought about why you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? Now, sometimes we don't want to answer that question because sometimes it brings up some doubts that we haven't had answers to, or at least adequate answers. But you know what? Listen, everybody struggles with doubts. As long as we live in this fallen flesh and we live in the world as thus, thus have we made it, there are going to be times when there are those doubts. But the big question is, why do you, why do you believe in God? Well, I can give you a lot of reasons that I believe in God. Let me give you three. First is creation. You know, when I, when I look at creation, I just, for the life of me, can't believe that this is an accident. I love to go sit out in the woods and get really, really quiet. And when you get quiet, there is a level of, of complexity and of, of detail that, that you don't really see unless you stop and you get quiet and not just stop talking but quiet on the inside so that you can observe it. And when you get like that, you can sit and when you're quiet, you see levels of complexity that you don't normally see. And that's just this macro universe that we see. There is, if you want to, if you want a course on the micro universe, talk, talk to Barry Newton. We have these staff meetings from time to time and at the end of our prayer time. And, you know, they start about uh, nine o'clock in the morning. And sometimes we don't really get to the staff business until about 10 because we're going around the table and there are prayer requests and people that we're praying for and these kinds of things. And, and, and some of those meetings, Barry, who, who, who was just really into the, this, this, this science part of this question, just sometimes cannot contain himself at the greatness of the intricacies and the complexities of the micro world. And he's got to share it with us. And I don't understand half of what he's saying. But, but he sees this and he goes, this could not be an accident. There's something behind it. 
And I agree. It's hard for me to believe that this is random. The creation is painting a much larger picture than what we hear in secular society. But it's not just creation. When I look at creation and just and think about the universe and how the universe calls to God and glorifies God, it's changed people. I mean, historically, I, think about the apostles. Think about the apostles. Why would they give their life for a lie? I mean, they could, have, they could have been brainwashed for a little bit, at least by Jesus, perhaps. I mean, if that's the real story, they could have been brainwashed. But after about 10 years or 15 years of persecution and, and heartache and, and, and roughing it and poverty and, and, and people being cruel to them and sometimes success, sometimes not success for a long time in preaching the gospel, why in the world would they continue down that road? At some point, you would think they would snap out. But that's not what happened. Some of them, with joy in their heart died cruel, cruel deaths. Not all of them died that cruel death. All of them died with joy because they knew the resurrected Messiah. But you ask the question, why would people give their lives for a teaching and for a doctrine that seems so counterintuitive? That you don't repay evil for evil, but you repay evil with good. That you love your neighbor that you pray for those that persecute you, that the first shall be last, that the greatest among you must be a servant. And it wasn't just those, those first century apostles and disciples of Jesus of Nazareth that lived that way. I mean, you think about all through history, the people and the degree to the change of life that they experienced because the gospel didn't just hit their heart but went all the way in like, like that Coke machine. We talk about the Coke machine. In the old days, you used to put that Coke, mach you know, Coke machine, you wanted a Coke, you put coins in, and sometimes the coins, you know, they'd get stuck, you'd have to shake it, and then you'd hear it go all the way in. Then you were able to access what was inside it. The gospel went all the way inside of them like the coin in that Coke machine. And it changed them. I, I think of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, that, that, that great hymn, that the words are so powerful and the tune and the, the, the melody and the words just sort of merge in such a way that even in our contemporary society with, with all of the music that we have, that is still a song. When people just hear the melody, it, they stop and they pause. But he was once a slave trader one of the roughest individuals that lived during his time period. Only to have the gospel impact his life in such a way that it not only turned him into a disciple of Jesus, but it turned him into a minister. How about the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your own heart? And then the last one I'll talk about is the resurrection. If you believe in the resurrection, and the evidence is, is that it happened, if you look at it. I mean, this, again, the changed lives, the, the, the recording of it, all of it. If the resurrection happened, and it did, then that means that something has impacted the earth and, and changed life in such a way that it will never be the same. I mean, we can, we can act, you know, some of us guys, we like, you know, we like to act pretty tough and say, you know, we're not afraid of any man. But when you get right down to it, you know, there is at least one thing that sometimes in our darkest moments, our, our weakest moments, we are fearful of, it, and that's death. Death is the one fight you don't win on your own. 
My dad used to say to my mom when he was alive and living in Fredericksburg, they'd drive down the road, he'd go, you know what the mortality rate of Fredericksburg, Texas is? My mom go, JT, what, you know, you've been reading the newspaper. He goes, 100%. <laughs> and then she'd start laughing, and she, I, she'd catch it. If the resurrection is true, and it is, then everything changes. And Jesus, as that first fruit of the resurrection, when we look at him and see him as the first fruit of the resurrection, we see what God's future is going to look like. And God's future in the resurrection of Jesus has broken into our present. And nothing will ever be the same. And so when you're going every day with your kiddos to school or you're driving down the street or you're watching a television show or you're reading a book or whatever it might be, you talk about why you believe in God. It's a truth. That this is a truth on which we base our lives, that there is a God, and that He knows us, and that we can know Him, and that not only do, can we know Him and He know us, but because of Christ, He is showing us that not only does He know us, but He wants to love us, and He wants us as His sons by adoption. Again, the way that it was before there was ever sin in the world. That's what we talk to our kiddos about. Do they know why you believe in God? And then the second thing, and we'll close with this, is that word duty. If you believe that there is a God who reveals himself personally, then belief with Yahweh is serious business. Yahweh calls us to love him. Now, what, what in the world you know, does, does that mean? Now, again, take a little half step out. I remember having a conversation some years ago, guys no longer employed at the radio station that we record all of our stuff at, uh, but it was a guy that said, you know, I, I really believe in God, sort of, but the one thing that I can't get my mind around is, why does this God tell us that we got to love him? Why does this God say, you know, you got to love me, you got to love me? I mean, he's so needy. I mean, I just, if he's God, he wouldn't need that. Well, you know, one of the responses to that is, in case you kind of run across that, is, well, um, why is it important that your kids love you as a parent? Especially in those early years where they're not really going to give you much back. They just do create a lot of work and a lot of expense. But when they love you the way that you love them, isn't there something sort of beautiful that begins to happen in the soul of that kid? I mean, what happens? I mean, you see this all the time. What happens when a parent has a kiddo and the kiddo does not love the parent? That the kiddo is rebellion against, I mean, regardless of what age, when that kiddo is not loving that parent, life does not go right for him. It's not that the parent is made or, or, or broken on that love from that kid. In fact, that kid exists as an extension of the love of two spouses and, and all of that creativity and all of that beauty. That birth of that child just becomes an extension. When you think about the trinity of God and the, the perfect harmony that they had, human beings being created is just an extension of that harmony that already and the perfect love that already existed. That kind of love creates. But when we decided that we were not going to love God, that God was not going to be our God, our God, our God alone, that's when the, the, the wheels came off of the wagon. So in God saying, love God, 
All he's saying is you have to get into that track in which life works. The way that a kiddo has to get into the track with a parent in which it works. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that word for love is, is the word ahev, which means uh, closeness. It means, it means intimacy. It means affection. It's ahev is what you see between... Uh, I started to say spices, but I meant spouses. It's what happens between spouses. It is the affection that is seen between parents and children. It's relational love. It's the word of close relationship. It's also, you know, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. God loves us and desires that we would love Him back. In the New Testament, the word is agape. That is, that word in which, you know, you, you do something to touch the heart of another. When we love God the way that Jesus is talking about it in Mark chapter 12, we do the things that touch the heart of God. We do the things of service that, uh, that show special relationship. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, when your kids are out on their own or they're out away from you and you hear that they have done something great or they did something that was unexpected but it was the right thing to do and it was, it was the great thing to do, I mean, how does that make you feel? I mean, goodness gracious, that's my daughter. That's my son. You go, man, I, I, I love them and I know that they, they, they get it. And you know what that feels like. In the Christian world, we sometimes have believers that say, you know, it's all about the stuff that you do. And you have other disciples of Jesus that say, you know, it's all about the relationship, and it's all about the worship and the praise and the expression of love. What the Bible teaches is that it's actually both. I mean, how do you, dads or husbands, how do you show your kids that you love your wife? They hear you say, I love you, when you say it to your wife, but they also see you demonstrate it you know some years ago uh, when our kids were, were younger uh, and I was still carrying a briefcase at that time I, I came home and the kids were home and Ellen was in the kitchen and they were cooking and kids were at the table and everybody it was just this wonderful scene I just you know just everything emotional that was good kind of just blossomed in my heart and I walk into that kitchen I put the briefcase down I walk over to Ellen I spin her around you know I grab her and lean her down I mean Hollywood Hollywood deluxe kiss right on the lips right there you know and all of a sudden I hear gross. <laughs> and I hear the kids laughing. And then I hear Jessica say to Jordan, did you hear what mom said? And I went, gross, what do you mean? You know, I thought that was, that was the right thing to do. But you know what? It's, it's, it's those moments like that when you interact with your kids and with your wife or with your husband that they see that love. But it's not just in the good moments either, is it? Sometimes it's in, it's in the hard stuff. You know, many of you know that uh, 21 years ago, Ellen and I made a really, really tough, tough decision about our future in Brazil. And for a couple of years, Ellen had been really struggling with, um, with migraines. Uh, she had had, uh, she was diagnosed with uh, chronic sinusitis. She had chronic bronchitis. I mean, she was, you know, her health was just, was just sort of plummeting. And, and, uh, and, and she knew how much I loved my life in Brazil. You know, jumping on that bus every day and, 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 and speaking to people in, in, a, in a different language and sharing the gospel. And, 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 and she enjoyed that life and we loved it. We felt called of God to do that. 
And there just came a point, though, where things were beginning to get a little bit dicey with her health. But she loves me more than her own life. And she knew that I was called by God for at least that portion of my life to preach in Portuguese. And so she wasn't ever, ever, and she never did ask to come home. Because she loved me and she loved God. Me, on the other hand, a little slow sometimes, as you know, a little thick and observing things I should be observing. You know, I'm going home every day. I'm taking care of the kids, trying to help her and all of this kind of stuff. And finally, there just was this day in which it all just kind of, my eyes opened up and I saw what was going on. And health is, is part of the package. Health is part of the package. And she was not going to make that decision because she loved me to ask if I would take the family back to the States. And there came that day where in my love for her and the vows that I made before God to love her, sickness and in health, because of my love for her, made the decision to come home. And kids see that. And they don't see you perfect. They don't see you flawless. They don't see you without making mistakes. They don't see, in, you know, they don't see you perfectly because you're not. But every day, you show them what love looks like. Not only for your spouse and not only for them, but you show them that because you believe in this God who created the heavens and the earth, this, this God who, who changes people's lives, including your own, this God who changes the entire history of the universe through the resurrection, this God who changes everything is a God that you love and that you serve and that it is something that they can see and they may not be able to get it right then and there, but the more they see it and the more you talk about it and the more you talk about it, the more you see it, the more they begin to see that every day they live in the eyesight, in the vision of this God who created the heavens and the earth, who gave His only Son in order that they, like you and like me and all of our sin, could find our way back to God and not have an easy life, but have a life that is enveloped in the love of God. And that, my friends, is joy and peace. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. I love you guys, you fathers. You single moms who are the heads of your own households and the work that you guys are doing and the work that you endeavor to do and that you've committed yourself to do. Don't sweat the small stuff. Love God. Love Him. And don't be afraid to show it. And don't be afraid to talk about all of those reasons why you love God or why you even believe that there's a God. And make sure that it happens in those normal everyday events and experiences that you have with your children. Because if you don't talk about it now, chances are you won't talk about it later. If we can help you in some way through prayer or through counsel or say maybe you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here this morning to help you and to talk with you about that. Let's stand and praise God together. In Christ, your broken life, so marred by sin, He will create.